Weber. It was just after the horrors of the 9-11 attacks. An elite group of CIA operatives called Team Alpha was dropped into Afghanistan. CIA officer and linguist David Tyson and CIA paramilitary Mike Spann had been sent to this fortress to interrogate roughly 400 foreign fighters taken captive by U.S. allies. Tyson is now talking about that secret mission on camera for the first time. Was the thinking that someone might have information oh, about the next 9-11? Yes. And they all said, we gave Bayat to Bin Laden. Bayat, plural. And we are Al-Qaeda. Hey, look at me. You know the people that you're here working with are terrorists? They killed other Muslims. That defiantly silent prisoner turned out to be a young Californian, John Walker Lind, later labeled the American Taliban. The prisoners should have been disarmed, but some managed to conceal their weapons, waiting to strike. One of the guards runs towards me. Farsi says, Farad, flee. And then I hear Mike's voice. I go to Mike, and Mike's shot, and the, there's men on top of him. I'm trying to take Mike's rifle, and I shoot four of them, and I take Mike's rifle. Shoot four of them? Yes. And with Mike's rifle, I turn around and begin shooting the guys who are now charging. It's not a linguist anymore. No, no. <laughs> no. Mike Spann dies fighting. The first combat casualty in the war. Tyson escapes to another part of the fort. I just run across this field, and when I'm running across this field, I am certain that I'm going to be killed. He stumbles upon a German TV crew. There's a prison uprising. Mortar rounds are coming at us. RPGs are coming at us. Tyson commandeers the reporter's phone to call the CIA for reinforcements. No, we do not control the fort. We control one end. I think it's the north end. There's hundreds of dead here, at least. I don't know how many Americans are here. Then Tyson leads a daring escape across an exposed roof. We saw men get shot doing that same thing. Tyson climbs over a parapet and down a 60-foot wall. And then we do a one-by-one, one, fall down the wall, and we run out to the road. I use my empty rifle to stop a vehicle. And he says, you know, don't shoot. He is later recognized by the CIA for saving lives. The war in Afghanistan ends in chaos. Now the Taliban are back in power and seeking revenge. You'll see him get shot. Ooh. Tyson receives daily messages from former Afghan allies. It's just so distressing because they're forgotten. He and other members of Team Alpha, including Span's widow Shannon, have been working to help Afghan partners and their families escape the Taliban. These are people who helped us, worked with us. They see this new mission as a way to honor Span's legacy. John Hendricks. I have a special guest for this week's podcast. Uh, he is an accomplished author 
and veteran correspondent. Uh, he's also the recipient of the Orwell Prize, and his latest book is First Casualty, The Untold Story of the CIA Mission to Avenge 9-11, uh, Toby Harden. Uh, how's it going, Toby? Hi, John. Good. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to talk to you. Um, you've done some very interesting things in your career uh, as a journalist. You've been all over the world reporting on, on various things. Uh, and, and these kind of things are uh, interesting to me uh, as someone who reports on conflicts that are happening today. Um, so we'll get into, you know, all of that. But, you know, let's start with uh, where you come from and, and sort of what your uh, upbringing was like. Yeah, sure. So as you can tell from the accent, uh, not originally from this side of the Atlantic. I was born in uh, Britain, in uh, United Kingdom. So I was born in Portsmouth, which is south of England, uh, a naval port. And my dad was in the Navy. Um, and I eventually uh, joined the Navy uh, myself. I became a U.S. citizen in 2009. So I'm a dual U.S. and U.K. citizen. Hmm. But I grew, grew up sort of in the north of England. Uh, far away from Portsmouth, Manchester, industrial city, famous for soccer, you know, known as football there, obviously. Um, and I went to uh, kind of inner city, um, independent Catholic school. Um, and I I guess I dreamed of getting away. <laughs> I spent lot, most of my childhood, I felt like plotting to just get a far, as far away from Manchester as I could because it just seemed sort of grim and insular and boring and so i wanted i wanted adventure and and travel and all that stuff so uh i joined the navy uh straight out of high school did a year's basic officer training then i got a a sponsorship from the navy to go to oxford to study history so i took sort of three years away from ships in the navy to do that then um you know went back to the navy immediately after i graduated um from college i joined a ship in hong kong we sailed around australia and it was it was pretty good times and i did that until um uh i left it i left the navy in 1994 so after nearly 10 years in uniform including the college time and at that point i was 28 uh and i decided to get into journalism i mean to be honest with you i'd been a little bit um, frustrated in the Navy because uh, it, it was the end of the Cold War. We s- traveled to lots of nice places, but it didn't feel real. There was no combat. I mean, I was based in Scotland during the Gulf War, and uh, you know, Northern Ireland didn't really involve the Navy very much. And the Falklands War had been just, bef- just before I joined the Navy in 1982. And so I decided to get my sort of adrenaline fix and adventure outside the Navy. And indeed, that's sort of what ended up happening with journalism. Yeah, I mean, just looking at your your sort of journalism uh, resume, you, you've been all over the place, um, reporting from different uh, areas and, and sort of conflict zones. Um, but just quickly to go back to your, your naval service, um, I saw that you... You did some work with the Norwegian Navy. Um, That's right, yeah. And and so you were transporting reindeer, basically? 
Yeah, that's a funny story. So that was uh, 1987, really sort of dating myself here. <laughs> but, um, I had um, so that was when I was still at university, and there were various things we could sort of sign up for activities, postings in vacation time, and uh, two of us, two two officers, young officers, like uh, it was a midshipman at the time, you know, like an officer cadet. I guess, um, and like ensign, I guess would be the equivalent. And um, we were sent to Norway for a month, and we zipped around the fjords in fast patrol boats, and uh, it was great. It was great fun. And one of the jobs of the Norwegian Navy, I mean, who would have thought it was to um, transfer the reindeer from <laughs> their, um, I guess it would have been their summer pastures mm. um, on. I think on on an island to their winter pastures on the mainland and the Royal Norwegian Navy used these little um, landing craft to do this and so yeah we had to uh, help herd these reindeer onto these landing craft and um, and trans and transport them a short distance onto the mainland so there was lots of you know lots of jokes about that and um, I wrote I guess it was early journalism for me. I wrote a little article about it for the in-house Navy publication, the Navy news, and they did a big cartoon about it. So, you know, it was fun. Uh, it wasn't exactly the sharp end of, um, of the armed forces, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, it was good to do. And was that in Northern Norway or? That was pretty far North. I forget exactly where it was. Um, but, uh, we went, we went right. I think Tromsø was, um, pretty much the furthest city north we went to but we went yeah it was um uh you know we went right up to the top of norway so it was it was pretty cold and um i think you know i actually forget whether whether it was i guess i think i was there in september so i guess it was sort of almost the midnight sun you know very mm. long long light days right yeah, I have a uh, I have a friend who's from northern Norway, and uh, she was a she's part of the, the Sami tribe. Okay, uh, the Sami peoples, and and they're you know they, they their lineage goes back like a couple thousand years, and um, a, a chunk of them, you know, they herd reindeer up in the north up there, mm. and um, uh, it's it's quite fascinating. Like the, their history goes back to the, the Viking age and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so, so when I saw that you did some reindeer work, I, I right away I, I thought that maybe uh, that has something to do with those people up there. Maybe I can't, I don't I've never heard of that tribe, um, but we were going into these tiny little villages, and it did seem like the land that time had forgot. You know, these very uh, you know um, sort of uh, I guess old fashioned yeah. sort of communities. Mm -hmm. Living very simply off the land, right. uh, you know, certainly not speak English and not having, you know, much contact with the modern world. It was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's fascinating stuff. So she was actually a, so they have their uh, those people up there. They have their their own parliament, um, and she was a parliamentarian. Uh, and she quit that, and now she's fighting in Ukraine, which is kind of a wild story in its own. But, oh wow! Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so so then you, you're, you're 28, 
uh, you get out of the Navy and you decide that you're going to pursue journalism. Um, I think I read that your your first stint as a journalist was in uh, Scotland. Yeah. So what happened was there was a bit of an overlap, you know. So to leave the Navy, I had to give a year's notice. So I had to sort of serve out a year. And I'd done bits and pieces of writing and, you know, I realized that the way to get into journalism, I didn't have any family connections or anything like that. The way to get in was to, just to write things and have bylines, you know, clippings, things published. Obviously, this was pre-internet. And so I had been based in Scotland in Rosyth, the naval base there, and I'd um, bought a flat in Leith, which was the port of Edinburgh. So I was living there. And so in vacations and stuff, that's where I would go back. And um, uh, Leith is a port of Edinburgh. And Edinburgh has a thing called the Edinburgh Festival, which is a big deal every summer. And and alongside that is a thing called the Edinburgh Fringe, which is theatre, basically. And, and that's become a, a big thing as well. And so every summer, the Scotsman newspaper, sort of national newspaper of Scotland, would you know, bring in people to, to write reviews of these, um, you know, plays and dramas. And so, uh, yeah, I knew somebody from college who worked for the Scotsman and managed to talk to the arts editor there who took a chance on me. And, and those were my, that was my first published writing really. And it was really good fun. And, you know, I used to go and see these plays type out a two or three hundred word review and then i'd cycle into edinburgh you know type it out on on um paper print it on paper and um uh i'd cycle up to the scotsman hand it in at the back door in an envelope for the arts editor to to pick up the next morning and then a day later it would be in the paper and sometimes if it was complimentary there would be posters around the city with you know this is what toby harnan says about this play so it gave me a bit of a you know that sort of um uh adrenaline thing of you know you write stuff and it's and it's published and it's out there for everybody to see so it was yeah, it was kind of a good good way to it was sort of creative writing as well in a way that you know um you could try a few different things and um you know, express yourself a little bit. So it was, it was a sort of good way to get in, I think. And it was lots of bylines because I was reviewing sometimes four or five things a day for two or three weeks. Yeah, and, and very different from today. Uh, you know, with the internet, you can, anyone can write anything and, you know, get a, a, a website hosted and, and just publish. And essentially, the, you're at some level uh, a journalist, you know? Yeah. No, this was way before all that. Um, and, I mean, the other thing I did actually around the same time is I would write letters to newspapers. I'd write letters to the independent newspaper about all sorts of – a couple of defense-type things. But I was supposed to stay away from that because I was you know, serving naval officer. Um, but So I'd write just letters sort of, you know – venting my opinion on different subjects and, and those would get published usually as well so uh but yeah nowadays i guess i just i would have had a twitter account or i'd be posting things on a blog or something but it was it was before all that it was it was old school yeah that's fascinating stuff um okay so then 
you know, that's that's kind of your start in journalism. Did you think that you wanted to be a foreign correspondent at this point, or did you kind of just end up in that role? That's a good question. So I didn't really, I, I knew I wanted to travel, but I remember, you know, I'd done the theater reviews of the Scotsman. I'd done, actually, I wrote some obituaries for the Independent, um, mostly of admirals who were, you just died or were, you know, or you put put them in the bank for when they did die. But I had a few of those published. So I had, an, had enough to prove that I was serious and that could write to some degree anyway. And um, somebody had said to me, he was actually a, he was a reservist in the Royal Air Force and he was a journalist and he was the night news editor of the Daily Express, which is pretty big middle market sort of, um, between the tabloids and the serious papers in Britain, and he was he was the night he was the night news editor, and I met him at some dinner. Very kind guy, Gordon Ducker was his name, and he said, "Well, if you want to get international newspaper, you want to." Co- I was aware that I was older, and I didn't want to go to to a regional paper and get stuck there, so I wanted to try and skip that traditional step of working for a regional paper before going to Fleet Street, which is what sort of national news, the, the street where national newspapers used to be. Um, and he said, the best, you've got service background. So the best place to try it is the Telegraph. And Max Hastings, now famous historian, was the editor. And he was very interested. He'd been made his name in the Falklands War as a war correspondent there and was very pro uh, armed forces. And so that's what I did. I got my foot in the door on the diary at, at the uh, at the Telegraph and started working for them. I actually worked for for no pay at weekends, and sometimes I would drive from Plymouth to London to go and do that, which is like a five hour drive. So I was pretty single minded and p- pretty dedicated. And from there, um, I was you know talking to the editor of the diary, a guy called Quentin Letts, who's still a well known journalist in in Britain, works for the Times. And he said, you know, you should you should have a tryout for news. And I thought, news, that sounds interesting. That sounds like the sharp end. And that sounds like travel and doing things. And and so he said, uh, you know, I'll, I'll arrange an interview with Max. So I had an interview with Max Hastings. And he said to me, uh, so what do you want to do? You know, what, what? how do you see your career? And I hadn't consciously thought about it. But I just said, I want to be a foreign correspondent. And um, I think it was the answer he wanted to hear. And just in that moment, I, I think I probably appreciated that, that he, he'd been a war correspondent and, and, and travelled all over the world. But I also, at the same time, was thinking, yeah, that is what I want to do. You know, it would be, it'd be great to do news in the UK. But, uh, you know, I've travelled all around with the Navy. I, I, I just want to, I want to see places. So it was almost, it's almost like I decided in that moment when he asked me the question that that is what I wanted to do. And that, from that point on, that was what I wanted to do. And I kind of, you know, plotted out how I could achieve that. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Um, you know, me personally, I, I've been to several different countries around the world and uh, traveling is probably my favorite thing to do. Um, and to, yeah. you know, meet different people and try different foods and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so all 
very fascinating stuff. Um, so and you... I think I'd grown, I'd grown up with, you know, my father was in the Navy and tales of, you know, going to the West Indies, the Caribbean mm. and traveling around the world. And my, my grandfather had fought in World War II and had a box full of World War II medals and stories of being in North Africa and France and, wow. and, and all over the place. So I think it was just sort of in my blood, really. Mm -hmm. And was your dad like a career Navy guy or? Uh, no, what, he, he's very similar to me. And obviously, I think an element of what I did was, you know, trying to live up to my father and all that mm -hmm. stuff that, that's quite common. Uh, he, he was similar in that he he joined as a full career officer, as I did. And he left in his late 20s, as I did. And he became an architect. So he, he went off and did something completely different. And I guess I did something completely different as well. But um, at that point, I think it was good to do something different from him. I wasn't going to go and become an architect because that would have been, you know, too much. Right. Okay. Okay. So you, um, you know, we'll, we'll continue to talk about your uh, foreign correspondent work. But I would like to talk about... Uh, your writing on the conflict in Northern Ireland. Uh, so you wrote sure. a book about it called Bandit Country, the IRA yeah. and South Armagh. Um, yeah. And uh, so th the way I, I kind of learned about this conflict was, um, I think it was 2008, um, a book was published called Kill Bin Laden uh, by an American uh, Delta Force commander uh, the pen name was uh, Dalton Fury. Uh, yes. His yes. his real name was Tom Greer, and he passed away a couple of years ago uh, from yes. cancer. Um, and so when I read that book, uh, I'd known a little bit about the U.S. military and like uh, you know the different special operations units and infantry and stuff. And but then he mentioned the British uh, Special Boat Service. Uh, yeah, as they had worked with the SBS in the early days uh, of the war, and I, I'd heard of the SAS as they are obviously the the more famous unit, yeah, uh, and perhaps the most famous special forces unit in the world. Um, and but I'd never heard of the SBS, so then I, I ended up getting a book by a former SBS guy, and he had served in Northern Ireland in a, a special intelligence detachment. Um, so that kind of that was kind of my path to learning about the conflict over there and and over the years, just kind of reading different things about it. Um, so it was which, which book was that? Duncan. I'm wondering which. Book yes, was Duncan Falconer. Duncan Falconer. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I read it. Yeah. Um, and and just reading that and and not really even knowing that these guys existed, uh, but they had a, a long storied history, you know, going back to World War Two and. Um, and then now, of course, there are some uh, somewhat famous uh, retired SBS guys. Um, uh, Nims Dye is, is one of them. Uh, you know, he, he set uh, a, a world record for climbing, uh, a speed record for climbing. Yeah. Uh, he's from Nepal, but he served in the, the uh, British Special Boat Service. Uh, and there's yeah. a couple other guys. Um but yeah, so the the conflict in Northern Ireland was uh, pretty nasty, um, uh, and and then just looking at it from like a a military perspective, uh, the IRA was you know uh, utilizing like 
sort of IEDs and mm-hmm. and there were assassinations and, and all mm-hmm. these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you talk about some of that for us? Yeah, sure. So the SBS actually, so in First Casualty, uh, the SBS features very prominently uh, in that. And, uh, you know, basically the British equivalent of the, of the Navy SEALs and, and certainly happy to talk about that. But so, yeah, Northern Ireland was my big break in, in journalism. So I started at the Telegraph on news in uh, 1994. And I think pretty, pretty quick showed that I could, I could do it. Uh, but I hadn't been to journalism school. I hadn't been to a regional paper. And I was sort of conscious that I was being, I was often the last person left in the newsroom when a big story broke because they didn't want to, they didn't know whether I could um, sort of work under that kind of pressure uh, out on my own um, and, you know, filing stories. And I felt I could. Um, and so when the opportunity came up to do Christmas cover for the Ireland correspondent, which I think would have been in Christmas 1995, uh, I jumped at the opportunity. I thought, like, you know, this is this is a chance to sort of be out on my own and and do things sort of from the field. And so I did that. And um, and then Max Hastings wanted me to go to the Evening Standard, which he was he'd moved and become the the editor of the Evening Standard. And I didn't want to go to the Standard because it was a London paper rather than a national paper. But the but the news editors at the Telegraph said to me, "So what would you like to do?" And I said, "I'd like to go to." I said the Middle East, which was sort of preposterous, really, because I was far too junior to do that, or uh, Northern Ireland. And they said, "Oh yeah, we think Northern Ireland might be a, a possibility." And sure enough, in early '96, I got sent to Northern Ireland. Now between them giving me the job and me getting there. Uh, the, the IRA ceasefire ended. So there'd been a ceasefire from August 94 that ended with a massive bomb, which is about a mile away from the Telegraph offices. And I was in the offices at, at the time, and we were in this huge building in Canary Wharf that, you know, shook with the sort of full... These editors uh, had a bit of a debate about whether I should still go to Northern Ireland, given that it just become a massive story. Um, but anyway, I did go and, uh, you know, it's very soon became one of the biggest stories in the world because you'd had this conflict going on, um, with the, uh, with the IRA fighting for a United Ireland against the British state, which, which, which included the police. So the mostly Protestant police, Royal Ulster Constabulary, and there'd been this low intensity sort of guerrilla warfare campaign since 1969 and it felt like it was coming to an end because there'd been a ceasefire and there were political talks going on but there was this sort of mix of politics and violence and you know as you say there were ieds car you know car bombs uh there'd be like i mean i remember learning all the acronyms you know so rcied like remote controlled or radio controlled ied cwid um command wire ied uh, VBIED, vehicle-borne ID, and so all that was happening in Northern Ireland, and uh, there were British troops there. The SAS was there, um, and sometimes the SBS as well, obviously operating undercover. There was an IRA sniper team that had a 50-caliber rifle, which was taking out soldiers sometimes from very long distances, and there was an SAS operation to uh, arrest them. And it was just an incredible time. And it's a very s- small, you know, 
patch of land and I was just, you know, completely single-minded about this job. And if something went bang, I could usually get there within an hour or two at the most. And I would go to everything. And um, it was a very close-knit communities on both sides. People were very politically engaged and they tended to talk. Everybody spoke English, you know, so it wasn't like sort of being in the Middle East. We had to have translators and fixers and and all that stuff. And um, so, uh, you know, I was writing, you know, after a while I was writing sort of the front page. I remember there were days where or weeks where I would write the front page story for the Telegraph every single day, plus two or three pieces inside the newspaper as well. So it was just a great way to become completely immersed in uh, journalism and you know conflict journalism. And a lot of people, a lot of British journalists who became foreign correspondents started off in Northern Ireland. So I was, I was sort of on that track. And how long did you spend uh, reporting up there? So it was about three and a half years. I got there in early 96 and uh, I left in late 99. And for my sins, and this was not how I'd really planned things. I mean, I wasn't complaining, but I got sent to Washington and I would have wanted to go to Jerusalem or Africa, perhaps somewhere that would was sort of grittier and uh, had more conflict involved in it. And but because there've been political talks in Northern Ireland, and I think I'd become quite good at writing about politics and had a sort of reputation for being able to cover politics and and you know write about it in the, the way that they sort of liked. Um, I got sent to the the world capital of politics, which was Washington, D.C. And I was a little bit concerned because I thought that wasn't my number one strength. And I'd have to be just writing about, you know, guys in suits in the Oval Office and on Capitol Hill. But, uh, of course, uh, within a year of getting there, so I got there at uh, the end of 99. So just over, um, well, I guess it was close to two years, actually, uh, 9-11, you know, 9-11. And so suddenly I was in a country at war and the conflict had, had come to, come to me and come to America really. Yeah. And I mean, that, that changed everything, uh, on the American side and, and certainly f uh, for the British as well. But, um, so you ended up, uh, writing bandit country or, or publishing it rather, uh, in August of 2000. Um, and then, uh, so this is right before, uh, or about a year before September 11th. Well, so actually it was published, I think it was published in, first published in November 99. So August 2000 okay. was the sort of the second paperback edition. It's basically what happened was, at the end of my time in Northern Ireland, I decided to write this book because i become fascinated by, Bandit Country was the name, sort of label given, to the border heartland of the IRA, South Armagh. And so uh, it's where this, this sniper team that I mentioned was operating out of. It's where Thomas Slab Murphy, the IRA chief of staff, he was a pig farmer and a fuel smuggler who lived on the, on the border. And also, all the nearly all the bombs in England in that period were made in South Armagh. They were South Armagh operations. So South Armagh was in charge of the, what the IRA called the England Department. 
So I became fascinated by this place. And there was also a guy called Robert Nyrak, who had been an S he wasn't in the SAS, but he was the sort of intelligence liaison officer with the SAS in South Armagh in 1977. And he'd been abducted and killed and his body disposed of and still to this day hasn't been found. But, a, a, you know, an extremely interesting character. So all this was about South Armagh. And so I wrote this book, Bandit Country, and I decided that I was never going to, yeah, I was going to leave Northern Ireland. I was never going to go back. So I didn't have to worry about safety or security or upsetting people or maintaining contacts. So I just sort of went kind of hell for leather with this book and gave it everything without worrying about any consequences and then left. And then the book was published a couple of months after I got to the, got to the United States. And did you receive like any, any flack from that? Like any threats or anything from people in Northern Ireland? No, not really. Um, I mean, I would hear things about certain IRA people, you know, calling me names or one guy was upset. He wasn't upset that I, um, said that he was responsible for more than two dozen murders, but he was upset because he got a hard time from his wife that I'd said he was a womanizer. <laughs> so there's, <laughs> there's stuff like that. Um, but I tried very hard, I think successfully to, to just write that book. And this is the way I've tried to write ever since. So straight down the middle. So it wasn't a political rant mm. Or it wasn't, I didn't have a, an agenda, oh, these are terrorists and you should hate them. I mean, obviously I have right. my own personal views on things, but I didn't use the word terrorism in the book other than in quotes, uh, because to me it just didn't seem necessary. I mean, obviously if you blow up, you know, women and children in in London or you, you know, shoot people dead, you know, in pubs, you know, in, in, in England, then that's terrorism. But you don't need me to to write it, write, you know, describe it as that. And obviously the IRA see themselves as freedom fighters and guerrilla fighters. And so I didn't want to alienate potentially half the audience. And, you know, a lot of people in the people of Irish, you know, parentage and, 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 and all that have some sympathies, at least for the cause of the IRA of United Ireland. And so I actually think on the Republican, as in the Irish Republican side, they appreciated that I'd taken the time and the trouble to talk to them as much as you know I could get them to talk to me, which was a lot more than I th thought they would. Um, but I think they felt that they were described as um, sort of accomplished military operators. And there was a lot of respect for them militarily from uh, the British Army and SAS, uh, for instance. And so... Um, I needn't have worried. I think it was quite well received on on both sides of the divide. Now, at the same time, it was clear from the book that I had very close contacts, um, good, you know, very good contacts and sources with you know, British intelligence, military intelligence, um, civilian intelligence. So I guess MI5 was sort of the FBI equivalent operating in Northern Ireland. And... Um, police special branch and so if i continued as a working as a day-to-day -day journalist then that may have made it um a little bit more difficult for me to operate because i think as an inexperienced relatively 
young reporter just showing up and saying, hey, I'm this English guy with a sort of Catholic background. Um, here I am. Just just tell me your story. Um, I could be a sort of a little bit, I, I think I could come off as a little bit more naive than I actually was. And obviously you can't keep, um, that, that approach isn't going to last forever. So I, I think it would have changed if, if, I, if I'd stayed. But generally speaking, uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, uh, reporters have, I mean, some have been killed and actually one was killed three or four years ago, but I don't think they meant to kill her. It was uh, a lucky or, you know, unlucky shot in uh, Derry, uh, Lyra McKee. But um, generally, journalists haven't been targeted. Um, you know, the, so there is intimidation and, uh, and, and stuff of, of, of reporters, but um, I never felt that I was under direct threat. And, um, uh, but anyway, I just, I, I just, I'd already decided to leave, so I wasn't even thinking about any of that stuff. Yeah, I think that's important to, uh, to sort of remove your personal opinions on, on the stories that you're covering, just in general, uh, for journalists. And I feel like the, uh, the opinion piece is, is partly, at least in the U.S., is like partly why we've gotten to like such an ugly point in politics and... Um, and the the sort of uh, business model of the major uh, media networks, where it's like opinion uh, is kind of pushed ahead of just pushing the, the you know the or giving you the the facts and information from a non biased point of view and and letting the viewers decide. Um, you know all the the most popular pundits, uh, you know they just give you their opinions on things and and twist. Uh, the information that sort of fit their viewpoint, yeah, and uh, it it's just you know at the end of the day, I think it's it's a negative for the country. So I, I really appreciate that sort of remaining neutral in, in in reporting. I think that's important. Yeah, I mean, it's I got just very very tired of it, and, and you know, certainly there've been occasions. I remember this would have been um, about fifteen years ago or so. Was but blogging was a big thing, and the paper was always the Telegraph that I was then working for. They were always pushing me to blog, and if you're going to do write blogs, then they want you to sort of have a lot of personality and and put your opinion in. But at the same time, you're as a news reporter, and I think it's it's distracting. And now, obviously, in the Trump era, there's been a lot of pressure to take a stance on on Trump. And um, I just feel that, you know, there, there's, there's always bias in reporting. So, you're, you're, you know, you're choosing who to quote and, and, and what to highlight. But, I, I, you know, I grew up professionally as a news reporter and The Telegraph, and I never forgot it, was always, it was editorially conservative and, and sort of establishment. But they always wanted the news straight, straight down the middle and um i think fairness was a was always um a big part of of that type of reporting as well that you know you can always arrange things to make uh the reader draw the worst possible conclusion about a person 
but that that's not fair you're not giving us you're not giving a person a, a fair shake you're not you're not showing that there's even though you might think it's unwarranted or whatever there's a there's a possibility that they are not you know the worst possible thing that, that they that they could be and so yeah with twitter and you know other social media and and all the rest of it over the years i've um yeah i've got i've got pretty tired of how partisan you know on both sides the media has gotten how journalists have decided that they need to have a point of view that they're sort of moral crusaders and i'm from the old school of the more and it's the same with books really you know i don't want to be i i i me 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 in books because i'm not i'm telling the story and i want to get out of the way so the reader can sort of meet and understand the the characters that i'm write about uh, writing about i mean i don't think that i'm anywhere near as interesting as all the people i wrote about in first casualty or bandit country or dead men risen or or any of those books yeah, I, I think that's how it should be. I, I don't know if uh, if it's possible to, to sort of do a reset and get journalism and reporting back on the on that track. Um, you know, I would hope so, but um, you know, I'm not sure if it's possible at this point. Like we seem to be like well beyond like reason when it comes to that. You know. Um, yeah. Okay, so. All right, so you were in D.C. Were you in D.C. on September 11th? I was. I was walking into the Telegraph Bureau, which was on 14th Street uh, between F and G. So right downtown, a few blocks from the White House. And I was walking into the office just as the first plane hit the World Trade Center. And uh, I thought, okay, this is weird. The reports were a small plane, and so like everybody else, you know, I thought it was some kind of you know private aircraft pilot that had got lost and done something really stupid um and um i went into my office sat down at the desk turned the tv on and started taking it in and then you know i saw live as so many other people did an airliner go into the second town it was clearly a passenger plane and i was like okay wow this is this is terrorism. We you know we all knew uh, Bin Laden and Al Qaeda were being talked about within a few minutes, and so I was you know immediately aware this was the this was the world changing. This was you know international terrorism, uh, an attack on America. The White House might be one of the targets because Flight ninety three was still in the air, and so it was very very close to me and also it was going to be the biggest work day of my life and i had to perform i had to work out what was going on i had to file stories very very quickly because the time difference is such that i mean this was happening at eight nine o'clock in the morning and we had to start writing filing stories by midday because it's a five-hour time difference so um i just sort of got to work and it was uh and put all the other things aside including is a plane going to hit the White House or just miss and land on this building? I, and I remember thinking to myself, well, I just can't even worry about that stuff because I've, I've got, you know, I've got some work to do. 
so after uh, you know after the towers fell, obviously that changed everything. Uh, did you remain in the U.S. or did you then uh, go elsewhere? So interesting. I was immediately, I guess, you know, like a lot of young. You know, I was in my what was I? What would I have been? Uh, Thirty-five. Um, you know, a hard-charging reporter. I was. I, I, I'd been in the military. I, you know, proved myself in Northern Ireland in a conflict environment. So I felt like this is my moment. You know, so send me over there. And they were like, "No, you're staying in Washington. You've been two years there already. You have good contacts in the Bush administration. You understand how it all works. Washington is a huge part of, of this story, and you'll have your chance later on." And so I was really frustrated. I mean, it was a huge story and it was a country at war and uh, there was lots of important work to do. But I was really frustrated uh, that I didn't get to Afghanistan immediately. And um, and then later on, of course, in 2003 with Iraq, you know, I tried very hard to um, to get get into Iraq for the invasion. And again, they wouldn't let me. And I was at really agitating at that point. Um, and then at the end of 2003, I did get sent to the Middle East. And of course, um, it seemed that it seemed in in 2001, two, three, that it might be like you know we'd had wars like the Gulf War, which had been very, very quick. And uh, it's you know see, you know I remember when the statue of Saddam Hussein came down in I uh, think April, May 2003. I remember sort of almost having my head in my hands in my office in DC thinking like, I can't believe I've missed it. You know, I've missed Afghanistan, I've missed Iraq. But of course, we were going to have 20 years of, of this stuff and there was going to be plenty of opportunity to cover it. And 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 that's what I did. But yeah, I was pretty impatient uh, at the time. Yeah, and it's so interesting to look back on it uh, because at the time, most people thought it was the conflict was going to be over relatively quickly. Yeah. Uh, you know, not thinking that 20 years later, we'd still be there. So um, it's interesting, like speaking to guys who were in the military, in the American military, uh, who missed the sort of first few deployments uh, into Afghanistan. And they would say things like, I thought like I was going to miss the war and yeah, uh, you know, and and that was it. And and little did they know, you know, they'd have ten deployments to Afghanistan. You know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's it's, there's a similar. I feel like there's a similar mindset sometimes between reporters mm -hmm. and the military. So you don't want bad things to happen. You don't want people to. You don't want wars to start and and people to die. But if that is happening, you want to be there because right. it's. It's what you've been trained for, and it's how you can prove yourself, and it's exciting. And um, so, yeah, I've met a lot of uh, of people, including some in first casualty, who um, you know thought they were going to miss the war, and then, of course, the war, you know, went on for a long time. Right. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about first casualty, but before we do that, like, let's talk a little bit about like some of the places you've been. Uh, covering conflicts. Um. Sure. So, um, well, I guess I, I, we went through Northern Ireland 
Um, I mean, the big one for me, you know, the first really big one for me, I guess, was Iraq. I mean, I got I I was posted to Jerusalem in uh, September 2003. And at that point, it seemed again, I mean, it seems almost comical to say it now, but that the Iraq war was over, that it was just mopping up and the State Department will be in charge. And I, I definitely went out to the Middle East with that mindset. And uh, I was thinking I'm going to ca- cover the uh, um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict because Iraq's over. I'm just going to focus on that, which is the big, big story, enduring story in the region. And of course, it didn't turn out like that. And so in April 2004, I mean, I'd already been to Iraq once in late 2003, but in April 2004, the wheels were coming off and there was an uprising in Sada City and there were a bunch of Marines killed in um, in Ramadi. So there was a Sunni uprising as well. At that point, I signed off from Jerusalem and went uh, full time in Iraq. You know, I'd, I'd go and spend uh, two or three months in Iraq and then come out for a few weeks and, th- and then go back in. And I, I did that repeatedly. And um, so, you know, that's when I started to see uh, and ex- experience uh, real combat. And then, but there was also, the, there's a lot of other stuff I was doing um, around the world as well. I went to, Z- in 2005, I went to Zimbabwe to cover elections there, but it was, Robert Mugabe regime, an extremely uh, brutal autocratic regime. And he was, there was really a civil war. I mean, he was at war with his own people. And uh, I got arrested there with a photographer, Julian Simmons, I was working with. And we ended up, we ended up going to jail uh, for two weeks, um, which doesn't sound like that long, but you know, when you're on day no, that's definitely 14, yeah. you know, <laughs> and you don't, you don't know when it's going to end. And you, you know, we were put on trial and we were facing potentially four years in, in prison. Wow. We were starting to think, um, well, you know, at least we're not going to have our ch- heads chopped off. It's not the end of the world, but on the other hand, four years in an African prison is not going to be pleasant, all the disease and God knows what else. Um, so there was, so there was that as well. So it was, um, it was a pretty frenetic time for me. And actually, after the prison time in uh, the jail time in Zimbabwe, I did think, you know, there's been all this Iraq stuff, Jerusalem, Zimbabwe. Maybe I need to, um, you know, like introduce a little bit of stability in my life. So at that point, I moved to London for a period, but that ended up being um, just a year. And then I was sent back to Washington. Wow, that's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, and and then being in a prison uh, where the regime is is pretty brutal. I mean, that's that's pretty scary stuff, I guess. Yeah, I mean, um, it's just one of those. You know, I mean, looking back in a way, I guess it's um, an exciting experience, right? Um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, we spent the first weekend, the first two or three days in a police cell, which was absolutely disgusting, um, just sort of sleeping on a stone floor. And that was just the two of us. And that was okay because, you know, it wasn't pleasant, but but I do remember going into, it was Harare Ramand prison um, in Harare, the capital of 
Zimbabwe and it was an old British colonial prison and they'd ripped out, they'd actually ripped out all the beds. So we were in a cell which was supposed to have like 20 people in it and there were 100 people. We were all sleeping on the floor. But I remember going in there and thinking, okay, so this is, we're in a different kind of realm here um, because we're going to be interacting with all these prisoners. Um, You know, we were the, I think there was what apart from the two of us, there was one other white guy in the prison, but he was South African. We were we you know, we thought about, you know, violence and rape and you know g- disease and God knows what. And actually it wasn't as bad as it it could have been. I mean, it was quite well organized. The prisoners were well the prison the prisoners had organized themselves pretty well. It was like almost like a military system. Like so there was a prisoner who was in charge of the cell and he had kind of lieutenants that would organize things. We were assigned people who would look after us. And there was sort of a deal that we had we had lawyers coming in. So we had a connection with the outside world and that they could bring in food. And the currency in in the jail was was soap and cigarettes, mm-hmm. and so they could they could bring in soap and cigarettes for us, which we could use to sort of pay the um, the bodyguards, if you like. And right. so we were gi- we were giving you know we were giving something back, and um, as far as I could see, thankfully there was no sexual violence <laughs> going on there because that's you know that's your number one fear in right. in, in jail certainly was mine and um yeah it was quite an experience um and actually i didn't think as much about disease as i should have done or could have done really uh, because that was the number one danger there but julian got typhus and scabies and i didn't get i didn't get anything so i was i don't know why but i was i was fortunate uh and it was you know it was just two weeks if it had been if it had been a few years then you know could have been more complicated right yeah it's interesting it seems like regardless of culture and, and uh, location uh, things like cigarettes and and uh, and maybe certain kinds of food is like the currency in prisons across the globe which is kind of interesting before we continue, I want to give a thank you to our sponsor for this podcast, and that's 10,000. They are a men's training brand. Uh, they make phenomenal gear. Uh, to test out their gear, I went to the gym with a shirt and a pair of shorts from 10,000. I went on my toughest day, which is legs. Uh, I hit it for about 45 minutes of weightlifting and then 20 minutes or so on the Stairmaster. And I sweat a lot uh, on this leg day. And normally I'm wearing a regular shirt and I'm drenched. And uh, once I'm done with my workout, I have to change shirts before I leave the gym. But uh, this shirt from 10,000, it handles the sweat really well. I'm not sure what they do to it. Uh, You know, maybe they sprinkle a little magic on it, but it's really phenomenal. Uh, I recommend it for anyone who's active. And uh, 10,000 works with top strength and endurance athletes to co-design, test, and develop their gear. So you know it's heavily vetted before it shows up at your door. Kit up now and get 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter code GLOBALRECON. That's T-E-N-T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D 
www.globalrecon.cc and enter the code GLOBALRECON to get 15% off. They offer free shipping, free returns, and a lifetime guarantee. Now get off your ass and get the highest quality, best fitting, most comfortable training shorts you've ever worn from 10,000. Okay, so after um, your time in Africa, uh, you get out of the prison there. Did you leave immediately or what was that like? Yeah, we were deported. So we we stayed overnight in uh, the... We were were released and then we had a court appearance the next day and we stayed with a British embassy, British consulate official, and uh, and then uh, we were just driven to the airport. They put a big, big X across our visas in our passports, and we were flown out. Yeah, that was it. Banned, banned people. I think I'm still a banned person in Zimbabwe. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, okay, so then, uh, so then, like, what was next for you after that? So I then um, went back. To, I basically went back to Washington. So it wasn't expected. It was partly because I met, I, you know, I met somebody American who um, I was getting married to. So I got, I got, I returned to to the U.S. in early 2006 and got married, and have been have been here ever since then. Okay, okay. And uh, do you ever go back to the U.K. at all, or you just mostly stay here? Um, I mostly stay here these days. But I was, but I was working for British papers newspapers up until uh sort of just just over four years ago so i worked for the telegraph for many many years i left in 2011 then i worked for the sunday times and so as part of the deal there i would go back regularly two three times a year these days i probably go back at least once a year because you know my uh, sisters and brother and my mother are still in the uk but um yeah not not nearly as often as i used to and um, was that your last uh, time sort of uh, reporting from a war zone? No, um, because I still and I still have, you know, the bug, really. Mm. Um, but uh, in two th- so 2009, so I was the U.S. editor for The Telegraph and covering mostly covering politics. I just covered the, you know, Obama campaign in the 2008 election, which was a huge story. And... Um, then a friend of mine from Northern Ireland, uh, Rupert Thornlow, who was a Welsh Guards officer, who'd been a friend and a source in, in Northern Ireland, he was killed in action in Afghanistan. And by that point, he was the battalion commander of the Welsh Guards. And it was Operation Panther's Claw in the height of the British casualties uh, in Afghanistan. And then the U.S. Marine Corps came in. So, you know, huge story. And uh, I wanted to find out what was going on i could immediately see that there could be a book in this because the battalion commander rupert had been killed a company commander had been killed a platoon commander had been killed all from the same battalion and that was the first time that had happened for the british since the korean war and rupert was the first battalion commander to be killed since colonel h jones and so i got out there and I spent a month or so in Afghanistan in, in 2009. And then sometimes I go on Pentagon trips. Um, and then with first casualty, I went back to Afghanistan in 2020 and spent um, 
a month and a half or so there. So I've so I've continued to um, go to hotspots, if you like, but um, but just not as frequently as I as I used to. I see. Okay. All right. So let's talk about first casualty. Um, I didn't get through the entire book, um, but I, I got through sort of the beginning part of it. And um, one of the things that you do in the beginning is you you go through sort of the the uh, pre U.S. invasion in the '90s, um, and maybe what people don't realize is. Uh, the the 90s was a volatile time in Afghanistan as well. Yeah. Uh you know a ton of people were killed and and uh, persecuted for religious beliefs. Uh, women have a very difficult time there. Um yeah. and and it's really the the Taliban really aren't the good people. Uh you know <laughs> That's right. pretty savage. Um Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um so yeah, so so tell us about the book. Tell us about sort of uh, what motivated you to write this book. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it's funny. Often you don't see these connections at the time, but all this is connected. So, so the book, you know, first casualty: the untold story of the CIA mission tonight uh, to avenge nine eleven. So it's about Mike Spann, who was a former Marine, CIA paramilitary officer who was the first casualty for the United States on the battlefield after 9-11. And so uh, he, he was part of Team Alpha, which was eight guys who were the first Americans behind enemy lines after 9-11. So this was the period when I was sort of stuck in, frustrated in Washington, and I covered Mike Spann's death and his, and his funeral for the, for the Telegraph. And I was very struck by, you know, these guys out on horseback, you know, in this, in the, in, and Mike was killed in this dusty fort called Kalajangi near Mazari Sharif. And um, his funeral at Arlington was incredibly moving. Uh, and his widow, Shannon Spann, spoke with immense grace. Um, and she was also a CIA officer. And so I was, I was fascinated by these people and who were they and how had they got there and this sort of shadowy world they were operating in. And then, the world moved on, and, and we were very soon into uh, into Iraq and and all those other things. But I never I never forgot about you know Mike Spann or or that story. And I was in Iraq. It was probably about three years later in two thousand and four. And somebody said to me, another reporter, "Did you ever see the footage of that CIA officer sort of running for his life in the fort after Mike Spann was killed?" And I hadn't seen it. And I looked at the footage, and it was shot by German TV who happened to be in Kalajangi Fort that day. And it was this American guy with a sort of scrubby beard, uh, wearing a sort of Afghan uh, cloak. Um, and he was he had a pistol in one hand, browning pistol, and a uh, Kalashnikov in, rifle in the other. And he was running across the fort, and Mike Spanner just been killed. And I was like, wow, who who is that guy? You know, what's he just been through? Uh, he's going to spend another few hours in the in the fort, calling in airstrikes and and trying to get out. And he does. He, I mean, I just also remember when he sort of stopped and he was confronted by this film crew. I remember his staring eyes and just thinking, "Wow, he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die, you know, in the next few hours." And he's just in a in a he's just in a world of 
sort of pain and trauma. And I was fascinated by that. And so eventually I returned to the United States. Um, and this would have been, I think it would have been about, uh, 2013. I, you know, I was getting a bit bored of covering us politics. And, um, so I decided to, uh, try and track David Tyson down because David Tyson was the guy and his name was out there. He was the case officer who was with Mike Spann, who was in the fort that day. And um, I did track him down through a, an academic at Indiana University who'd thanked him in it, the, the acknowledgments to um, to um, a book. And um, so I met David and he was pretty cagey. He was still serving in the CIA, but he was, you know, he he talk to me about what happened that day. Um, and then the sort of contact stopped. So it took another seven years before he spoke to me properly, which was when he had retired. Um, but I, I just thought this is just incredible. I mean, he was the, the first, um, Mike Spam was the first American to die in Afghanistan. Um, you, you spoke right at the beginning about the SBS, I mean, the, the rescue force to get David out and to try and quell uprising, because this is a prisoner uprising, Al-Qaeda prisoners in the fort and the, who'd killed Mike. And we're trying to break out and we're trying to retake Masary Sharif. Um, and the rescue force, 15-man rescue force, well, eight of those uh, were um, an SAS unit. Uh, sorry, an SBS unit. Um, and one of them in the SBS unit was a Navy SEAL who was on an exchange posting. And so... I thought, wow, you have Green Berets, because that, that 15-man rescue team was led by Major Mark Mitchell, who was a Green Beret. There was a CIA medic there called Glenn, um, who was, you know, for many years just this mysterious figure and is now a, a pretty good friend of mine. You know, um, all these people I got to, I ended up getting to know very well. Um, and so, you know, that, that period, 2013, 2014, I thought this is a this is a book. You know, there's been the Horse Soldiers book about the Green Berets, but um, the story of of what happened in Kalajangi Fort and the story of the CIA team and David, in particular David Tyson's story, hasn't been told. So I want to tell it for various reasons. It got kind of shelved for a while, and then in I guess it would have been 2019 uh, with the 20th anniversary of 9/11 coming up. I decided that that was the time to tell it. Also, I was aware that a lot of people were retiring. So even in 2013, 2014, it was hard to get to people because so many people were still in Afghanistan or they were still in the CIA or still in the military. And it's a lot harder. They're much more restricted in terms of, you know, what they can talk about and whether they'll talk to you. And so I felt that that was the moment. And, and that's how it turned out to be. I mean, I never expected it, but I ended up speaking, interviewing, all six surviving members of Team Alpha. So um, a second person, Mark Rausenberger, who was the medic on Team Alpha, he died in 2016 in the, in the Philippines. But the other six, I interviewed uh, SBS guys, um, AC-130 crews, uh, F-14, F-16 pilots. And then there was the Afghan side. So Abdul Rashid Dostan, this notorious warlord, um, he was uh, he was the sort of indigenous ally for for uh, Team Alpha uh, in two thousand and one, and so it just became this incredible story um, 
at this at this pivotal moment in history as well, 9-11, those first few weeks when actually the United States uh, and you know the CIA had a formula for success in Afghanistan with very small numbers of Americans and British allies uh, going in there and working with the Afghan resistance to overthrow the Taliban regime and get to Al-Qaeda. It, it, it worked, you know, so we sort of almost won the war in the first couple of months and then spent 20 years leaving it, uh, losing it. So, um, yeah, I just felt it was this incredible story um, and I wanted to piece it together and it was just incredibly uh, exhilarating and rewarding and really an honour to be able to talk to all these people and, um, and you know, write about, you know, the sort of definitive account of, of what happened in those those crucial early months. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating, and uh, to sort of put it into perspective, uh, it's obviously dangerous to deploy to a war zone, uh, you know, as a a soldier or a marine or a journalist covering uh, the fighting uh, when, when the when so the situation is sort of mapped out. Yeah, but in those days, it was like completely going into the unknown. Um, yes there wasn't big military bases and systems of support set up, yeah. uh, you know, uh, in, in most of the fighting later on, uh, if a guy got wounded or something, uh, you know, typically within an hour, some sort of rescue aircraft would be, or helicopter would get there and, and, uh, guys who were shot or blown up would be on an operating table, um, yeah. you know, fairly quickly. So, uh, to, to sort of go into the unknown uh, and, and and be the the initial response uh, to a horrendous terror uh, event that took place in America uh, took a ton of bravery and and uh, if I can recall correctly uh, the incident in which Mike Spann was killed was uh, inside uh, that uh, that sort of fort there yeah and and those guys who were there, those were Taliban and Al Qaeda who had surrendered to U.S. forces. Yeah, well, so I'm really glad you picked up on that point about going into the unknown and all these systems not being in place because that's absolutely kind of one of the key points about this period, and one of the things that for me made it so fascinating because the CIA had a sort of a concept of operations because. They'd been in and out of Afghanistan, small teams called Jawbreaker or NALT, Northern Alliance Liaison Team, before 9-11. And David Tyson was actually uh, on some of those teams. And they'd, they'd fly into the Panjshir Valley, which was controlled by the Northern Alliance, this kind of small um, sliver of, of land that the Taliban hadn't been able to conquer. And they'd meet with Ahmed Shah Massoud, who ended up being assassinated on September the 9th. 2001. And so the CIA and elements of the sort of national security community were pushing to get to bin Laden and get to Al-Qaeda, but they weren't getting the authorities, legal authorities from either the Clinton administration or the Bush administration to do it. But once 9-11 had happen, happened, then it was the gloves were off and it was get in there and and do the business and you can have all the, the money and the guns and the authority to kill people that, that you want. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. These eight guys, um, they flew into the unknown October 16th, 17th, 2001. They're in Black Hawk helicopters from K2 base, uh, Kashi Khanabad base in Uzbekistan. And they flew, um, 
you know, over the mountains into northern Afghanistan, landed um, south of, of Masri Sharif, Taliban-controlled territory, but they linked up with Dostum, the warlord that, that I was talking about. And, you know, when they landed, Dostum was a notoriously bloodthirsty warlord who was, you know, always switching sides and, um, you know, with rep- reputation as a brutal fighter, but also for treachery. And so they didn't know whether they were just going to be shot um, you know, as soon as they arrived or where they were going to be welcomed. I mean, they hoped they were going to be welcomed and there was some intelligence to suggest that they 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 would be. But this wasn't um, a plan that went through um, committees and kind of vetting procedures. I mean, it was like almost like a pickup team of, were, in this, there were eight of them, there were four paramilitaries, two case officers, a medic and a Green Beret. Some of them have worked together uh, some of them had basically never met before a few days before they went in. Uh, but they had all these different skills. They weren't especially young. I mean, the oldest one was 48, who's Alex Hernandez, who was a former Special Forces Sergeant Major and Special Operations guy who'd had a storied career in in the Army and then become a CIA paramilitary. Um, David was David Tyson was an Uzbek uh linguist and he spoke many other languages turkmen and dari as well an afghan specialist but who'd had an academic background although he'd been in the in the army twice as well um and so yeah i mean really really interesting characters i mean people who'd lived life and you know it wasn't like a military unit where you know they're all kind of trained uh killers and you know special operators i mean there was some of that in their background but there was also sort of anthropology and and languages and cultural expertise and spying i mean they I mean two case officers they were sort of traditional spies and um yeah so the kind of the the, the kind of arc of the book is it starts on 9-11 and, and i pieced you know i wanted to put it in the context of afghan history and uh, American history through the characters early on in the book, but then once they're in, there's really 40 days between when they land and the crescendo of the book, which is the Battle of Kalajangi and, as you said, this uprising. Um, so there were 400 prisoners. They were actually Al-Qaeda, not the Taliban. Uh, there were no Afghans amongst the prisoners. They were all foreign fighters, and they were from Brigade, Brigade 055, which is a, an Al-Qaeda unit, that was embedded within the Taliban forces. One of those uh, Al-Qaeda fighters was John Walker Lind, who became known as the American Taliban, even though he was Al-Qaeda, but Californian, white guy, um, converted to Islam when he was 16, and then had gone to study Islam or, you know, fight jihad, um, and is still a jihadist to this day after spending nearly two decades in prison. And... Yeah, it all sort of went pear-shaped on November 25th, 2001, when David Tyson and Mike Spann were in um, the southern uh, kind of half, southern compound of of, of Kalajangi. Uh, it's extremely dangerous. They, they knew it was. But uh, there was this, you know, you have to remember the times, there's this sort of imperative to, to question al-Qaeda, to find out, you know, what... Who was responsible for 9/11, and even more importantly, to stop any future attacks that we thought were going to happen imminently? Um, and so they went into the fort uh, to uh, question these Al Qaeda fighters. They had 
Afghan allies and all Dostum's guys with them. But they, I mean, what David and Mike, I think, didn't realize was that Dostum's had sent his sort of C team there and his um, his real fighters were in Kunduz, um, 100 miles or so to the east for what was expected to be the final Taliban stand in northern Afghanistan. But what was really going on, there was a sort of a Trojan horse plan. And so you referred to the surrender and I is surrender in inverted commas. It was really a fake surrender. Um, so these 400 Al Qaeda fighters, um, they were supposed to, uh, surrender outside Kunduz with everybody else, but instead they were transported close to Masri Sharif. Um, and so they were, they were behind enemy lines, you know, the, their, their enemy, you know, the American lines and, um, they weren't searched properly uh, by the Northern Alliance, partly because of Afghan tradition that, you know, you just surrender and you're not even disarmed and you just go home. Partly because I think Dostum's um, men were terrified of these mostly Arab foreign fighters. Um, but yeah, so about 11 o'clock in the morning um, on November 25th, 2001, after David and Mike had been questioning these prisoners for a few hours you know there's grenades started going off there's gunfire some of these al-qaeda guys grabbed the guards and disarmed them killed them and then there's a full-scale uprising and um mike is killed in the first uh few minutes i mean he goes down fighting firing his glock pistol and his kalashnikov but he gets overwhelmed um david you know, runs towards him, which is just incredible. Um, you know, the Afghans, Afghan, the Northern Alliance guys are running for their lives. David's running towards probable death, kills the guys on top of Mike's ban, and then has, you know, literally grenades bouncing off him. Um, uh, Al-Qaeda prisoners, some of whom are still have their hands tied, are sort of flinging themselves at him, headbutting him. Um, they're exchanging gunfire and, um, you know, I think very, very few people have lived to tell a tale like the one David Tyson was able to tell me. And I spent many, many hours, probably hundreds of hours with him talking about this and going through it. And his, you know, he described to me how time slowed down, how he experienced tunnel vision, loss of hearing, and the sort of psychological transformation he experienced in that incredibly intense situation was to me just fascinating. And so, um, you know, that's the, what I always describe as sort of the crescendo of the, of the book, you know, having introduced these fascinating characters and David with all his experience, academic experience and linguistic experience, um, but not being um, a particularly highly trained uh, military operator, he's suddenly put in this extraordinary situation and he manages to function and, and effectively and, and to survive. Yeah, I remember reading about the, the surrender uh, from uh, Dalton Fury's perspective. Uh, yeah. As they had basically had Al-Qaeda on their heels. Um, and, and so essentially when, when Delta Force and the SBS went into the, uh, the Hindu Kush, Yeah. Uh, and they were fighting Al-Qaeda and, and bin Laden. 
they weren't uh, exactly firing their rifles. They were uh, they were sort of spread out in these positions where they can see uh, the the Al Qaeda fighters, and they were calling in airstrikes. Yeah, and uh, so it was a. I don't remember if it was like two weeks or so of this or three weeks, and they had essentially dropped a ton of bombs uh, on this mountain range and killed a bunch of fighters, and uh, and they had the upper hand, and then. Uh, you know this this quote unquote surrender took place, and I remember uh, from reading the book, uh, the Americans were f- extremely frustrated with this this whole process, and um, and they wanted to sort of continue to push, and uh, they had radio intercept of of Bin Laden, uh, essentially. Uh, Telling his fighters like like it was over, this is the end, and they they it was very controversial. They couldn't get permission to seal off the border on the Pakistani side yeah. to to sort of block off any uh, potential escape for Bin Laden. So they, they could have gotten him then uh, at, yeah. at that point, uh, but they couldn't get permission to do so. And I'm not ex- sure exactly what happened there. I, I would imagine it had something to do with politics and and Pakistan. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's so, yes, I cover this. I mean, the Bin Laden uh, and Tora Bora side of things. So this, so I'm, so first casualties principally about the North and I focused on these eight um, uh, members of, of Team Alpha and the Green Berets and the SBS who, who were with them and the, the Northern Alliance allies. But as soon as Mazari Sharif had fallen, which was November the 10th, there was this feeling um, in Washington that the war, it was, oh, the war in the North was over and it was just a matter of time before the Taliban regime fell, which was, which was true. But they switched their attention towards the South uh, and, and Bin Laden. And that's when this Trojan horse uh, plan um, came about. And if you think about it, it's almost like a microcosm of what eventually happened because, you know, from, the end of the Taliban regime in December 2001, there was a sense it's all over. But in fact, the Taliban came back um, across Afghanistan, just as they had in Mazari Sharif. And yeah, I mean, I cover it. I mean, Hank Crumpton was the head of CTCSO, Counterterrorism Center of Special Operations, in, um, in the CIA. He was the guy who was running the war day to day. And he was, you know, speaking to David and J.R. Seeger, who was the chief of Team Alpha. Um, Daily and the Jawbreaker team in the Panjshir Valley, and um, uh, Hank Crumpton. I mean, there were big clashes with General Tommy Franks, who was um, the four-star commander of uh, CENTCOM Central Command. You know, head of the big army, and uh, Hank Crumpton. You know, wanted the border. He wanted Franks to send in many more troops, seal a border as much as a border with Pakistan can ever be sealed. And um, the CIA felt that there just weren't enough uh, troops uh, committed to get bin Laden. And as you say, he, he slipped away and it was another decade before the CIA and the Navy SEALs uh, got him. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, quite frustrating, I think. Uh, had they been able to get him at that point, uh, it, it probably the war probably wouldn't have gone on for much longer. And then, 
another point that you brought up that was very interesting was how uh, initially there was a, you know small teams of CIA and special operations forces who went in and were very successful, uh, sort of uh, you know integrating with uh, Afghan locals and and partners, and and that was very successful at uh, sort of routing Al Qaeda, and then. Things started to go downhill once they brought in this sort of huge war machine and, and yeah. tried to, you know, build democracies and, and sort of uh, set things up in the American image, you know, which, which yeah. is really a, a bad idea. Yeah, and that, that's absolutely right. And it's, um, tra- you know, I think one of the ironies and the tragedies of this period is that um, we were a victim of our own success, really. So the, the Pentagon and Donald Rumsfeld, um, they've been very pessimistic about the first few months of this war. And they were, you know, they were expecting that the CIA teams and the Green Beret teams to be sort of bogged down through the winter and, uh, the, the, you know, the Taliban regime to cling on until the spring. But in fact, the Taliban regime was removed very, very quickly because this formula, as you say, a very small numbers of Americans, small teams going in, it, it worked. And it was it was really old-fashioned principles like special SOE, Special Operations Executive, and the OSS, um, Office of Strategic Services in, in World War II, uh, like the Jedburgh teams who went behind enemy lines, very similar to Team Alpha. And so it's back to these first principles. But there was a sense in Washington, I guess you can call it, American optimism or arrogance or hubris that we were so successful that this is easy. And so now we can go, we can shoot for the moon. You know, we can have, as you said, you know, build a centralized democracy in our own image in Afghanistan. We can also go on to Iraq and remove another regime and spread democracy there. And so it's uh, an irony that if, if perhaps the Trojan horse uprising, Masri Sharif, Kalajangi, and then, you know, had led to the fall of Masri Sharif. And, um, you know, and the sort of the messiness of, of it had um, had been demonstrated and the, the dangers and the potential pitfalls of Afghanistan had been sort of more apparent than we there wouldn't have been this mission creep and you wouldn't have had the big army and a hundred thousand troops and, and all the rest of it. But you know, history is um is a strange thing. You can't, you know, rerun the experiment another way and events unfolded uh the way they did. But um I mean one of the things I really enjoyed about uh writing this book and putting the story together was the the incredible characters um that are involved, but also there's just the broader implications and echoes through history in, in this period. So it's not just a story of, you know, eight guys kicking ass in Afghanistan, although there is, you know, a fair amount of that. Um, it, it's something that, you know, is connected to what happened before 9-11, what happened on 9-11 and what's happened over the last 20 years. So I feel that there's, there are sort of a lot of um, lessons and connections uh, to the broader picture uh, from this quite sort of micro, you know, ground level story of of um, this, you know, band of brave Americans who who went in there after nine eleven. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, it was almost interesting because I remember the Bush administration was, was talking about, like, you know, this war on terror is going to be quick. Uh, you know, go in, kill the bad people and get out. And uh, in in some ways that has happened, in, uh, you know, outside of the Middle East, like in Southeast Asia or, or some African countries. Mm. Um, but it, it really turned into the opposite of that. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, this like nation building concept. Uh, and in many ways, it's, it's, it's very arrogant to think that you can go to a place like Afghanistan where these people have been there for, you know, thousands and thousands of years uh, and, and their cultures older than, you know, America itself and, and even sort of the idea of democracy itself and, um, and, and think that you're going to sort of change the way they've been doing business for, you know, as long as, yeah. as, as, as they've been there. And, um, when and especially when there there was a a very recent example of, of the Soviet Union attempting to do something similar and failed miserably, you know. Right. Right. No, I know. I mean, it's a sort of, you know, one of the beauties of America, in a way, if that's the right word, is, and the incredible things about America is this sense of, you know, we can, you know, I'm a proud American citizen now. Um, that we can do anything and we're the greatest country in the world and we have all these resources. Uh, but our Achilles heel is, is sort of the same thing that, that we don't, we don't realize that the world is, you know, a lot more complicated than black and white and good and evil and with us or, or against us. Right. It's sort of a world of gray and, you know, there's, I don't know, the law of unintended consequences and, and the, the law, I mean, in fact, first casualties the title sort of works on a few levels and one of them was that the first casualty um in in war is the plan you know mm -hmm. and as soon as as soon as the plan connects with reality you know it changes um and so um you know you could it certainly um you know certainly happened with vietnam you know happened with somalia happened with beirut um you know, the world is a complicated and unforgiving place. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the Soviet example was very much talked about in 2001. And that's why we went in with these small teams. But then we drifted for all sorts of reasons, you know, and I'm, I'm not pretending any of this was simple and easy to, um, uh, to you know, come up with a winning formula. And I'm not going to sit here in Virginia in... 2023 and say oh if only they'd listen to someone like me i mean it's, it's right, right. none of this is none of this is is easy stuff but we did kind of sleepwalk almost into this situation where we had a hundred thousand troops and military bases and um you know we never sorted out the pakistan uh, problem the sanctuary cross-border sanctuary um you know which was a thing that had happened in in vietnam as well so um, so yeah, it's a story. You know, it's a story of, of heroism and incredible achievement, but also of, of sort of tragedy and, and things going wrong as well. But that tends to be, you know, the way life and the way history is. So you mentioned that uh, among the original eight, that uh, you know, obviously Mike Spann was killed 
Yeah. Um, but you mentioned another guy was killed. I think the medic. Um, yeah, Mark Rausenberger. So Mark, so he, I never met him sadly, but you know, a great, a great guy by all accounts. Um, he was um, a former army medic. He's no, he was known as Dark Mark because he had this sort of very dour appearance and you know deep voice, and he was um, kind of um, you know kind of a downbeat manner, um, but a great sense of humor underneath that. And he was also an accomplished artist. He made his own knives. He was an out, outdoorsman, um, a great reader. And um, he became uh, a paramilitary. So he was, he was a medic. I was going to say just a medic, but he wasn't just a medic. I mean, he did field amputations, um, you know, in, in incredible conditions in, in Afghanistan. So he was an accomplished medic and actually a physician, qualified physician's assistant. But he became a paramilitary officer, which is relatively unusual for a medic in CIA. Um, and... Uh, kept volunteering for for missions and uh, my understanding is that he had a heart condition um he knew about it and um there was concern about him going on a, you know uh you know intense missions in austere conditions far away from um from medical help and he as a medic himself knew that more than anybody else but he still he still volunteered and i don't know the details and they're still classified but um he died um i believe of a of a heart condition um you know natural certainly natural causes in the philippines but while on a cia mission and so he oh wow you know he gave his he gave his life um you know he put his life on the line again and he's you know his ashes um, are at Arlington Cemetery, and Mike's band is buried there. And so, um, in 2021, um, a, b- a bunch of bunch of us and t- t- members of Team Alpha and Team Bravo. So Glenn, the medic that I mentioned, who he carried out he carried out a field amputation with uh, a shred multi tool, which is wow. like a leather man. Um, in Afghanistan, he spoke to a surgeon on the sat phone in Lanshdul who told him what to do. And it's a bit like on airplane when they, in an airplane, when they tell, you know, you call the ground and ask how to fly the plane. He basically did the medical equivalent of that and, and amputated a foot and the incredible, um, incredible things they did. And so Glenn was there and David and Scott Spellmeyer and Alex Hernandez. And, um, we went to Arlington to honor and, uh, to, on a mic, uh, and also Mark Rausenberger. Wow. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal stuff. Yeah. I mean, that, that's completely crazy. Uh, uh, and it, the analogy, the airplane analogy is interesting because you, <laughs> I actually hear stories about that happening, like not often, but it's definitely happened before, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was, so <laughs> I remember first, been told the story and you know scott spellmeyer uh, who was in team alpha and he'd moved over to command team bravo which was another three cia officers who, ca- who came in and so it was glenn a guy called greg and a guy called bob um came in and uh, glenn was a medic and um yeah so this foot needed to be amputated from an afghan who stepped on a mine and and Glenn says to Scott, he says, I don't really know how to do do it. And Scott says, so he called CIA headquarters and said, you know, this is what Glenn needs to do. And they said, you know, you know, 
you know, give us a few minutes and then sort of 10, 15 minutes later, the sat phone rings and it's CIA headquarters saying, we're patching you through to Landstuhl. And there was an army surgeon who, um, uh, you know, who was put on the line. Scott hands the sat phone to Glenn and Scott described how he's listening to Glenn saying, yep, okay, yep, okay, yep, right, got it. And then, you know, end of the call and then Glenn gets out this, um, this, um, multi-tool with a saw attachment on it and takes this guy's foot off. And this That's is in crazy. the dirt and the dust. The, the stretcher is, um, is a ladder. Um, there's a, there are Afghan boys there with, uh, sticks to chase away the dogs. So they don't pick up the bits of toe and foot that have just been taken off. There's a, the light is a sort of the single bulb from a rigged up from a generator. And, you know, Glenn describes it as civil war, medicine and um so yeah that's what he and 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 mark rausenberger and the green beret medics were were doing and so that's another sort of incredible um element of this story so after the the uprising uh in which mike span was killed um did the sbs and green berets respond to that yes so Basically, there's this 15-man team which is just put together on the fly uh, in the Turkish school, which was the um, American base where the SBS was also in Masri Sharif. And they jump into vehicles and they just drive towards the sound of, of gunfire. And they don't know what they're going to face. And uh, that day, um, a bunch of them peel off. So Steph Bass, who was a SEAL, a guy called Tony, who was an SBS corporal, uh, Glenn, the medic I just talked about, uh, Fakir, who was uh, an Afghan commander, and Mark Mitchell, Major Mark Mitchell, who was the Green, Green Beret commander, they crawl around the outside of the fort, crawl across a minefield, and there are mortar shells landing by them. They climb into the fort, and they actually climb up the wall. On a, on There are turbans that have been tied together, that have been dropped down to make a, a rope, and they get into the fort, and, uh, and, and they're you know, shooting these Al Qaeda fighters that are coming through the central gate from the southern compound into the northern compound, and um, you know, later that day, um, Steph Bass, the SEAL, crawls forward. You know, under fire, um, he's using Kalashnikovs that he's picking up off the you know dead bodies of Northern Alliance fighters, and he sees Mike Span's body, well, what's almost certainly Mike Span's body, and turns out to it was it was his body. And, and sort of I fires rounds either side of the body to see whether there's any flinching or anything, to see whether there are any signs of life. Um, and Steph Bass was awarded the Navy Cross for, for that action. Tony was awarded um, the Conspicuous Gallantry Cross, which is the sort of number two medal um, for the British military. And um, Mark Mitchell, uh, a Distinguished Service Cross, you know, one one level below the Medal of Honor. Um, and that was just that was just November 25th. Um, and then the next day, they're back in the fort again. There's a 2,000-pound uh, JDAM that's uh, this, a pilot error, um, U.S. Marine Corps pilot. You know, switch, it gets the coordinates mixed up, 2,000-pound bombs dropped on a friendly position, kills a bunch of Afghan allies, you know, wounds um, a number of Green Berets and an SBS. And you're into a sort of six-day battle of attrition then uh, and at the end of it 86 
of these 400 al-Qaeda fighters emerge uh, from the um, from the cellar of the pink house, which was the building in the in the in the um, in the southern compound where they'd been held um, at the beginning. You know, they were brought out for the interrogations, and so um, yeah, I mean, there was some really fierce fighting, um, and it took six days to quell the uprising in the end. Yeah, I remember. Um... I think there were some like pretty famous uh, images uh, yes. of, the, of the SBS in particular uh, from that that sort of battle there. Yes, um, that that have been you know circulating the internet for twenty years. That's right. So there was a like a local Afghan um, who you know again quite incredible sort of bravery and resourcefulness himself who who sort of crawled in there and took this footage of the SBS. And in particular, there's a guy called um, Sergeant Scruff McGough, Paul McGough, but his nickname <laughs> was Scruff, who who um, died tragically in um, like a paragliding accident in, in 2007. But oh, you, no. see this you see this footage of him firing this GPMG, just sort of raining hell onto the Al-Qaeda fighters down below. And you hear all these you know British voices, like, all right, mate, you know, all right, Scruff, you know. Okay, flip. You know all this kind of, you know that sort of um, uh, typical British accent. And these guys, you know, I mean, it's fierce, fierce combat. So yeah, those are pretty famous images. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's crazy stuff. And uh, you know, I remember um, after reading uh, Dalton Fury's book. Uh, I think I think I read it about two thousand eight. Yeah. Uh, and then it just I just went down a rabbit hole of like looking up information and and seeing what images and videos there were from from that entire period uh, in Afghanistan and uh, and I, I remember distinctly there were uh, an SBS operator with like I don't know something covering like half of the bottom half of his face yeah. and yeah yeah so yeah so the SBS were much more concerned about, you know, shielding their identities than than uh, U.S. special forces were. So they had these black and white kefirs, um, and um, I, I can I know who they are now. Um, you know, I can see Steph Bass and I can see Tony, and you know I know all their names. But it's funny. There's a different tradition in British special operations, whereas yeah. the SAS and the SBS is almost sort of usually for life where they never reveal who they are, whereas in the U.S. it's a little different. But, um, but yeah, so I was, um, you know, I didn't identify, apart from Scruff, who was dead, um, I didn't identify, I had just used first names and nicknames for all the SBS operators because, you know, that's the way they, that's the way they wanted it. Yeah, I have noticed that. Um, obviously, I, I interviewed a ton of American uh, special operators from the different branches and I have talked to a couple of British uh, Special Forces guys as well. Um, but typically, in my experience, the Brits are, are way more guarded in, in how they speak about things. And and, yeah. um, and in, in many cases, they're not willing to speak about any Special Forces related stuff at all. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's like a... If I can remember correctly, I think... Uh, I don't remember if it was the 70s or the 80s where there were a series of uh, special forces books that came out in the UK. 
Um, And then uh, sort of from that point on, uh, the the uh, commands themselves really came down hard on on some people and and they sort of established this culture of like never speaking about anything at all kind of so yeah yeah that's right so i think so there were some books written after the 1980 iranian embassy um hostage siege in london um but the big kind of flap was uh, after the gulf war so the early 90s when Andy McNabb is a pseudonym, but he was on the Bravo 2-0 mission, which is a mission which went badly wrong during the Gulf War. And he wrote this, he wrote the Bravo 2-0 book, which was a huge bestseller. Um, and then General Sir Peter de la Billiere, who was the overall commander of the British forces in the Gulf War, he was a former SAS commander. He wrote a book. And both of them were banned from the SAS mess in Sterling Lines in in Hereford. And there was a big sort of clampdown. But, you know, there have been a number of SAS books since. And there are TV programs in Britain's controversy about that. And the SBS is much sort of lower key. And then also we see what's happened with the SEALs, um, you know, particularly since the Bin Laden raid right. with, with the books and TV programs and, and movies and podcasts and everything. And so it's, you know, the SEALs are really out there, much more so than, than uh, Delta Force. So, you know, these things go in waves and there are, you know, backlashes and, and, and things. But it's, it's, it's interesting. And for, for someone like me to navigate this and persuade people to trust me and, and talk to me, it can be you know, it can be a challenge. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, okay, so, uh, you know, in, in recent years, in the last two, three years, have you been doing much writing or have you been sort of taking a break from that? No, no, so, um, well, I have a, um, I'm doing some work for a- ARP, um, American Association for Retired People. I, I run a veterans newsletter. I'm the editor of a veterans newsletter uh, that comes out every two weeks. Uh, so I've been, I've been doing that as a sort of a side side gig, if you like. Um, but I'm working on another book, which is uh, CIA-related, um, which I'm very excited about. I won't reveal exactly what it's about, but um, I've been sort of building on First Casualty um, for this next book, which... Um, I don't know when it'll come out. Probably, I think would think twenty twenty five. But uh, yeah, I really, I mean, it was a, a huge privilege and a, an amazing experience to get to know these people uh, through writing First Casualty, and I wanted to sort of develop that um, and uh, do another book uh, about the CIA, and th- this one will be sort of broad the broader. And it'll have uh, sort of more historical elements, but it will also be, you know, right up to present day as well. So um, maybe I can come back sometime and, and talk about that, um, you know, when I've written it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's uh, and, and that's great to hear, you know, someone like myself. I, I'm very interested in, in uh reading about these kind of stories and, and, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, to, to what extent it's possible that like what's going on in the, in the intelligence world in terms of like security and, 
and the challenges that are faced there, um, uh, and you know, when it comes to protecting America and uh, protecting the UK and, and things like that. So, uh, you know, I find all that stuff fascinating, and it's it's great yeah. to hear that you're working on something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just inc- there are incredible people who are just, you know, who join the CIA and you know other organizations with no thought other than to you know, serve and protect their country and never, uh, expect any publicity. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I feel as a way of, of, of telling these stories that sort of honor them, that don't endanger people, um, and, and sort of future and current operations. And I'm very, very keen to be able to do that. Yeah, that, that's phenomenal stuff. And it's great work. Um, thank you. Yeah, you know, I, I'm glad that we were able to do this. Um, and I want to give a shout out to Michelle Black, who sort of uh, connected us together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was very kind of her. And that's a sacrifice is a great book. And yeah. obviously, yeah, a huge price um, she paid for being able to write that book. But, uh, you know, she's she's a great writer and a great reporter, as well as, you know, a person who's obviously at the, at the center of, of that story. Um, and, uh, so, you know, she's a, she's an incredible person and yeah, it was very kind of her to, to make the introduction. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny when, uh, cause she had, she had messaged me and she said, Hey, you know, I, I want to introduce you to this guy I know. And, but I'd already heard about you and, um, and seen some of your stuff, some of your work before. Um, so I, I was, you know, very happy to, to, to sit down and do this. Um, so if if anyone right. listening if anyone listening wants to sort of keep up with what you got going on on social media or website uh, where can yeah. they go to do that so pretty easy to get hold of really and follow so uh, I have my website which is tobyharnden.com um, and then I, I put out a lot of stuff I've got a lot of um, photos and um, and some footage from this period with, that I like to put out on Instagram to sort of supplement the the material in the book and future books. So my Instagram handle is Toby Harnden one, uh, the number one. Um, I'm currently locked out of Twitter, which uh, I'm actually less and less upset about. I'm just locked out because for security reasons, because I changed my iPhone. So even though I have really? my username and password and, and all the rest of it, I can't get into my Twitter account, but that's at Toby Harnden. I'm, I should think I'll be back on that at some point. Um, and then, you know, I think I'm Toby Hand, an author on, on Facebook. And then obviously the book is um, sold everywhere. But, you know, the easiest place to get it is uh, is Amazon. And I'm always happy as well if people can, you know, send me a, a DM and you contact me via the website to, to you know, personalize and sign and sign books. And so, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things I like about uh, this whole process is interacting with with readers and, you know, podcasts like this. Um, and you know, that's, uh, a way of getting new ideas and feedback about how, how about, if you heard of this person, how about doing it like this? Or, you know, I enjoyed this about the book, but maybe you could have done more of that. So, you know, I, I, I think the creative process, um, is, uh, something that only benefits from, from contacts with readers. I don't see myself as some, you know, person sitting in an ivory tower dispensing wisdom to people yeah. you know i think uh, you know it's a two-way process 
Yeah, that, that's phenomenal. And um, yeah, that's great. And, and I encourage uh, the listeners to, to pick up a copy of your book. It, it's really fascinating stuff. And, and uh, you know, you take a look at a, a point in history that it, it was covered, but not as probably as not as much as it should have been. And, um, you know, for, for folks who are in the security services, in the intelligence community, uh, Mike Spann is a name that a lot of people recognize. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's, it's great stuff. So, uh, you know, happy to have you on today. Thank you very much, John. I really appreciate it.
Hello, hello. 